A couple years ago, I bought a Python Staff of Enlightenment from a company in Australia, and they made it using 3D printing. I know many of you, you have used 3D printers for fun and side projects. Even my neighborhood craft store has a small 3D printer for sale for a few hundred dollars. I don't have one though, but I would love to play one with one. What I didn't know was 3D printing is also used in industry to make super strong and high temperature parts for automotive and airline and other industries, and that's pretty cool. I didn't know that until I started talking with Len, that is. Len Wanger works on industrial 3D printers, and I was pleased to find out that there's a bunch of Python in those printers as well. In, th in this episode, Len and I talk about 3D printers, what are the different types of 3D printers, where are 3D printed industrial parts being used? Why would you use one type of additive manufacturing over another? And because this isn't just that kind of a podcast, we also talk about the Python that's used in 3D printing hardware. But we'll talk about finite state machines, the benefits of FSMs for testing, logging, and breaking a complex behavior into small testable parts, and also the benefits of simulation in writing and testing software to control hardware. It's a really fun episode, I think. I think you'll get a lot out of it, even if you're not into the hardware software thing. This episode of Testing Code is brought to you by Datadog and CircleCI. And I want to thank them, and I'd like you to thank them by listening to their segments in the show and to check out their offerings with the links that I've provided. It's also, this episode is also brought to you by listeners just like you that support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for helping to support the show. Welcome to Testing Code, because software engineering should include more testing. On today's episode of Testing Code, I have Len Wanger. You and I exchanged some emails on finite state machines, but I then, then found out that you work for a company that does 3D printing, and I'm fascinated by this the the sort of work that you're doing because I of course I know about 3D printing but I thought it was things like people building mock parts and um, I've heard about people doing rapid design of like skateboard pieces and things like that um, and I know it's it's done in lots of um, lots of industries but you're kind of at like the high end um, industrial type printing is that correct That's right. What are the different types of 3D printing that are around? Well, happy to talk about that, and, and thanks for having me on your podcast here. So 3D printing, has, it's about a 40-year-old technology at this point, and it's really blossomed into a lot of different categories. Uh, you're right that when most people think about it, they think about a FDM or fused, uh, fused filament printer. These are the plastic filaments that look kind of like uh, big rolls of uh, plastic spaghetti. And it's kind of like a hot glue gun. What it does is it melts the plastic and puts a small layer of it up and then drops the bed down a little bit and puts the next layer on top of the previous one and builds it up. So it's a, something we call additive manufacturing because opposed to subtractive techniques that a lot of people are used to like carving things or drilling things, you're building it up layer by layer. And it turns out there are a lot of different ways of doing additive manufacturing at this point. And it's really 
uh, hit all over the place. So we talked about FDM there a little bit, uh, the fused deposition types. But there are also uh, things like uh, stereolithography, where you take uh, pools of photoactivated resin. And what you'll do with the laser is you'll, you'll coat a small uh, layer on top, uh, harden it with uh, ultraviolet light, or other techniques, and then drop it down a little bit and recode it with another piece. There are pieces with uh, beds of powders. Uh, those powders can either be polymers, plastics, or metal. So they'll coat a small layer of uh, powder, and then they'll melt it with uh, a, a high-energy source, such as um, a laser. And you can make uh, plastic parts, or uh, there's a large category now of direct metal parts you can make that way. We have a, a process that makes composite parts, things like carbon fiber composites and fiberglass composites that's called CBAM, uh, composite-based additive manufacturing. We take layers of fabric. We coat it then with polymers in uh, the place where you want the part. We stack these uh, sheets up together, put them in a press, and consolidate. I'll talk a little more in detail, I'm sure, about this later. And uh, can make very strong, very light composite parts. But people are doing all kinds of things. People are printing with chocolate. People are pr uh, making uh, organs. Uh, they're doing bioprinting to print cells. There's a, a whole proliferation. What I'd really do is I'd, I'd split it into two main categories. They're really sort of the consumer categories. And these are the types of things you see in schools, which are generally these FDM or, or you know, filament printers. And then there's a whole industrial category, and that's where we play is making end-use parts for manufacturers. And really, it's, uh, it's really blossomed where we're making things for some of the largest, most sophisticated manufacturers in the world – Ford Motor Company, the United States Air Force, Jable, which is a large contract manufacturer. It's going in airplanes and cars and medical devices and everything you can imagine there in the uh, industrial space. Where are these things showing up? For instance, an airplane or something, what part might be made in this process? Right. So that's a, that's a terrific question. And airplanes and cars are also a very difficult area because these are highly regulated areas where you know safety is of a big concern. So it can take a long time to get a part qualified on a plane like that. To give you an example, uh, a commercial airplane right now might have three to four hundred three D printed parts in it. This is you know, for instance, a Boeing or an Airbus uh, jet that you would fly in, or yeah, pre-COVID you'd be flying. No one's flying right now, but. Uh, the 300 and 400 parts. Now, this this platform might have you know 100 or 120,000 unique parts on it, so it's still a very small number of parts. Uh, where the low-hanging fruit for the parts that you're seeing are, these are generally very high complexity parts, uh, geometric complexity. Uh, so you know, a, a large flat surface like what you have on your wing is generally not a great candidate. But uh, GE, for instance, has a new model of engine where they're doing fuel injectors with it, and what they're finding with it is they can consolidate from having you know 16 parts in the previous version of it to doing one 3D printed part because you can do a lot of complexity of your part for uh, without adding a lot of cost to it. In traditional manufacturing, when you add complexity, you add cost. In additive manufacturing, you, you, the complexity is free, is what they like to say, and that's that's basically true. So they'll find that they get a you know 30% uh, increase in efficiency and a 15% reduction of weight by doing these fuel injectors. What you're tending to find are these these smaller, very complex parts, and um, what we, we call non-rotating parts. They're generally not the structural parts that you're depending on, because additive manufacturing 
tends not to be as strong a part, for instance, as a cast metal part. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of places where it's very useful. Where you're seeing an even bigger proliferation of it also, those where you don't have as big a regulatory issue with it. So, for instance, an, an unmanned drone uh, where there are not people flying in it, so you're not as worried about the safety. Uh, you can see many, many more parts and you can move much more quickly. But it's really going all over the place. And it's, it's hitting in all kinds of funny areas on top of it. Um, I can name lots of different applications, but one of them that we're seeing that's very interesting, for instance, is just for the uh, manufacturing of circuit boards, where uh, when you're doing wave soldering, you put it on a on a board to hold the components onto the your uh, your, your green circuit board, and we're making a lot of these uh, printed circuit board carriers, for instance, uh, something that no one, including us, would have ever thought about using for it, but it turns out to be very good for 3D printing. So there are all kinds of things you can do, but it generally tends to be lower volume, high complexity parts. Okay, yeah. Low, um, and those are things that are uh, already expensive to make in traditional right. processes then. Yeah, yeah. What well, the low volume is a, is an important aspect of that. When you're doing manufacturing, you're often making tooling, and the tooling can be very expensive. So when you're making a low volume fit, you're amortizing out that cost of that tooling with every part you make. So if you're only making a hundred and your tooling costs a thousand dollars, you'd be adding ten dollars per part for the tooling. Now, by the time you get up to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, you've gone to a point where it, it's really de minimis for that tooling amount. But so if you're making low volume, if you're making one or five or a hundred of it, uh, you can afford to spend more for the the part from a 3D manufacturing because you might be saving from these other pieces like the tooling. Okay. And, and then an additional piece too where you can justify cost often is the time to market and the speed that you can move to make a redesign, get it out there. Uh, there's a lot of value in being able to get a part out there quickly. Yeah, definitely. This episode is sponsored by CircleCI. Designed for modern software teams, CircleCI's continuous integration and delivery platform helps developers push code with confidence. Trusted by thousands of companies, from four-person startups to Fortune 500 businesses, CircleCI helps teams take their software from idea to delivery quickly, safely, and at scale. Visit circle.ci slash testingcode to learn why high-performing DevOps teams use CircleCI to automate and accelerate their CI-CD pipelines. That link again is circle.ci slash testingcode, and that link will also be in our show notes. And you will definitely want to go and check that out before July 30th because you can enter to win a pair of Sony noise-canceling headphones. Very cool, Circle CI, and thank you for sponsoring this episode. You work at a, a company with a really cool name. <laughs> right. Remind me what it is again? The, the company is Impossible Objects. Uh, it's a little bit of an oversell here. It's probably Im Improbable or Difficult Objects would probably be a different name, but Impossible Objects is it's a, a great name. Thank but, you. But some of the, I was looking at the site and some of the composites, um, are have a melting point of like over 300 degrees i didn't think you could do that with plastics so that's pretty cool well it's and it's celsius not fahrenheit i mean these are very high uh a lot of in when you get into the world of of composites you can get into some very um interesting material properties you can get to very high melting points you can get to a lot of uh 
chemical re uh, resistances uh, that can use, be used in harsh environments. One of the reasons we're being used in the solder pellet environment is first you hit this with liquid metal, with liquid solder, right? So it has to be able to take the thermal shock of that. And then you have to cl clean it off with some fairly nasty chemicals afterwards. So the material properties really matter. And, uh, and that's one of the big lessons. You know, I, I named several different categories of additive manufacturing. And the real question is, why would you use one versus another? And why would you use that versus any of the other ways of, of manufacturing an object, stamping and casting and drilling, and uh, it goes on and on and on. Um, and a big piece of it is marrying the, um, the specifications of the materials you can get. We tend to use um, carbon fiber or fiberglass as a substrate and then marry it with one of different polymers. One of the polymers we use is, is PEEK, that's P-E-E. EK, polyether ether ketone, I believe it stands for. It's kind of a mouthful. And this is a very high melting point uh, plastic that's used widely in the medical and aerospace industries. You know, if you have an airplane, you're very, very concerned about a fire uh, because uh, people can die of smoke inhalation before you can get to the ground. So they've got very rigorous uh, smoke and fire regulations on it. And something like Peak has a very high melting point and also doesn't put out a lot of smoke. So there's a lot of technology that goes into these things. And yeah, it is a little surprising you, you can you can make things out of these. It, it's kind of neat. It's not surprising that it's going into things like drones because these uh, high strength, uh, high melting point parts are also lighter than metal, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can have a smaller engine on your drone if you and less battery if you have lighter parts. Yep. Um, this is a really interesting conversation. But we are a podcast that talks about testing and <laughs> Python. So how are we going to get back there, right? <laughs> You're a software developer, right? Yeah, my background is all uh, in software and, and computer graphics, actually, which led into simulation and uh, which which led into 3D printing. Um, and yeah, so what's interesting is we actually have... Uh, developed our machines that we, we sell, uh, the software that runs them is based on Python, uh, which is kind of a curious choice for, for hardware, but uh, it's worked out very well for us. Okay. How, how long have you been doing this? Well, uh, I graduated uh, college in what, the, the, the mid-80s, 87, and went off to work for Hewlett-Packard. And these those days, they used to make... Uh, graphics workstations at Hewlett-Packard, similar to what uh, Silicon Graphics later did, which now basically looks like uh, our $100,000 uh, workstation now has been put into a $200 NVIDIA card, except it's about uh, 2 million times faster now. Um, and uh, so I've been doing software for, for quite a while in a lot of different incarnations there. Um, and, and the computer graphics I've done, though, has always been on the, not the the picture-making side of it, but the software that makes the pictures, so the rendering algorithms, et cetera. So if you've used technologies like OpenGL, it, more on that side of the, the implementation there. Um, and I got into Python early on. Um, I was a researcher at the San Diego Supercomputer Center for a while, and we were working on uh, climate simulations for NASA. And one of our competitors uh, was implementing a, a visual, visualization system uh, a guy named Randy Pausch, who uh, uh, ended up being a kind of an interesting character. He uh, very sadly he, uh, he he died quite young, but he went before he did. He wrote a book and was on Oprah, and it was it was quite a story. Uh, he had used uh, 
Python in a technology called Pandas 3D. That's different from the the data frame pandas. It was a 3D visualization piece. And uh, so I started playing around with Python around then. Uh, it was probably Python 1.8 at that point. And uh, started using it really in earnest about Python 2.1 for some projects we were doing. Right, 2000 or so. I, I can't remember the date. You've been using Python for quite a while then. I have. Um, and it's uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's really a, a fascinating language. Um, you know, I'm sure all your users have heard a lot of these Python podcasts, but the the ability to leverage developer time and, and the productivity you can get out of it is remarkable. And then on top of it, with the packages available in the community, it, it's just a remarkable tool to use. And that is one of the secrets where it's been so useful for us on the implementing the 3D printers. Developer time is way more costly than computer time. I got into it because of uh, test automation of uh, testing hardware. The communication costs and latencies for things like just the communication to the from the your computer to the device and then things like waiting for settling time, those sorts of delays, the um, communication was the bottleneck. It was never Python. So developer time was ideal to be able to de- to write in whatever you can that makes it easier to read. Completely agree, right. I guess it's not really that surprising to me Knowing the the strengths of Python, that Python could be effective on a 3D printer, because you're in similar situations where there's physical processes going on. Right. Yeah, I mean, we might be printing 10 pages a minute. Our, our printer, since we're using sheets of fabric, we, we actually talk about it in pages. And uh, if you think about it from a processor period of time, you've got six seconds in between pages that's a that's an eternity to to a processor on top of when you start using multi-cores and multi-processing i mean you just have uh, a real luxury there of compute time and the, the python you know it, it tends to be really for top level message passing between all of our systems so it can be quite slow there and the things it's talking to tend to be tightly rolled c whether you know it's a numpy or a, a pill or pillow or or uh, a, a library that we write or talking to a microcontroller but it, you the the python slowness is really not not the issue for us and if it does there are lots and lots of techniques to, to pull some tricks you know like multiprocessing or writing a little bit of c code to get around it uh, number all kinds of different things and we, we generally uh haven't had to resort to too much that the the standard uh, you know uh, C packages out there like the like the NumPy's and the pills, and some intelligent Python has gotten us quite far. Are you having trouble visualizing bottlenecks and latency in your apps, and are not sure where the issue is coming from or how to solve it? With Datadog's end-to-end monitoring platform, you can use their customizable built-in dashboard to collect metrics and visualize app performance in real time. Datadog automatically correlates logs and traces at all, at the level of individual requests, allowing you to quickly troubleshoot your Python applications. Plus, their service map automatically plots the flow of requests across your app architecture so you can understand dependencies and proactively monitor the performance of your apps. Start tracking the performance of your apps with a free trial at testingcode.com datadog. If you sign up for a trial and install the agent, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. When you say fabric, I think of like a bolt of fabric to make t-shirts and stuff. 
It's not much different. Instead of your cotton thread, though, you'd use a thread of glass for fiberglass or a thread of, of, of carbon, almost looks like hair. And they use a similar to a paper making process to lay it down, um, you know, in specified thickness. Our, our fibers tend to be about half inch to an inch long. They refer to that as long fiber. There are different types of carbon fiber. You'll also hear of woven fabrics or or, or continuous fibers. But we actually do get bolts, thousand yard long bolts of this carbon fiber fabric, and we cut sheets out of it because we have a sheet-based system. There also would be you know, roll-based or, or web-based systems that you could make. But it is very similar to what you'd get with your, uh, with your cotton t-shirt. In fact, we have used uh, different natural fibers such as uh, silk and cotton to print on. Uh, we're not we haven't commercialized that, but uh, it, it is a sheet very similar to what you're thinking about with that type of cloth. I assume then there's there's leftover stuff that you're not using, right? <laughs> yes. Well, there's uh, waste is one of the big issues here because there's leftover in, in a number of places. When we stack our sheets up, you get something that looks kind of like a brick of material with the part embedded inside it. And you blast away the, the part of the sheet where there's no no part and the part is revealed in there. So that is a waste product there. Um, we have some plans to do recycling. Right now we don't have enough volume that it's making sense, but we're, we're working on that one. And then, yeah, there are bits of fabric left over. Um, okay. So, yeah. But it's, uh, you know, if you – you t you have waste in manufacturing um, in in the different processes. If you are using a CNC milling machine, which looks kind of like a a drill on a six-axis arm, you can end up with ninety percent of the metal and shavings on the floor. Uh, so you, you have to you have to pick your poison there. Yeah, but waste is clearly one of the factors you need to look at. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, definitely. All manufacturing has to deal with those same sorts of uh, um, <laughs> issues, right? Absolutely. Uh, within your Python, within this stuff, you've got uh, finite state machines. Yes, that's how we start our conversation. To to somebody that's never heard of it, uh, can you describe what a FSM is? Sure, uh, and it's it's used quite widely in the hardware world. So a, a finite state machine is uh, it's a data structure. It's 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 a directed graph structure. So what you have is nodes, and you've got connections between these nodes, and each node represents um, a state. Uh, so in, in, in our printer, I'll, I'll use that as an example as we go along, I might have a state that's initializing. And after initializing, I might have waiting for a print job from my, uh, my print server. And then I might have uh, waiting to print the first page and then printing the first page and then go back to waiting to print the next page. I might have another state that's an error state. What you have in the states then is you have uh, a way of processing and dealing with inputs. And uh, inputs could be, you know, in our case of a printer, a sensor value. It could be a click from the GUI telling uh, you to do something. Uh, it could be a status from, from the hardware. And what the state then is, it knows how to respond to these inputs for the particular state it's in. And it also has another event that it can do, which is transitioning to another state. So what you have is if, if we were to try to understand what to do with all these different inputs in all these different conditions, we'd have just a whole rat's nest of if-then statements, and, and it gets unmanageable very quickly. But it's much easier to say, if I'm in the printing state and I get a button press in my GUI that says pause – what I'll do is I'll transition to the pause state. 
and what I can do then from the pause state, maybe I can open the door without tripping the emergency stop, right? Because now I'm in a stopped state there. Maybe I can interrogate something or set something. Uh, and if I hit the unpause button, I go back into the running state. Uh, so it's a very nice abstraction to be able to deal with complicated states and how to deal with their inputs. Um, and you find it quite often in uh, in the hardware world, uh, if you were designing you know, a, a Coke machine, for instance, you put uh, a coin into the coin slot and how it's dealing with the counter and eventually the count gets high enough that you could purchase a drink. Well, when you press the button, uh, before that it gets to that total, it's not going to let any can come out. Afterwards, what it's going to do is it's going to produce a can and produce your change, then go back into the waiting state with the coin. So you do see it quite often in in, in hardware implementations. Um, there's a lot of places, even within software, where you where you have fairly complicated behavior when you get all the details, but in concept, the concept's not that hard to to understand. It's just a few lines of code that's right. I, whenever you're doing with the graphic user interface, a, a state machine is a very natural thing to do, for instance, because uh, you tend to have modes in these and what buttons are on and off and what happens when you press things. And, and yeah, you, this, uh, finite state machines are, are all over the place. They're used very heavily in simulation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a major concept in computer science, and if you haven't used it, they're, they're fun to play with. They're very easy to do, and there's some good packages we can talk about in a minute. Uh, but it can really, really simplify your code. Plus, one of the things I love about them is that it makes it so you can test these behaviors easily because you, you need to hook up actions to the events. If they're attached to physical interaction or actually driving hardware, that's tough to test. But you can replace all these callbacks with, something you can test, like a print statement or something else. Yes. And then you can test the whole thing really fast. I, I think that's right. It's also very difficult to understand what's going on in a complex system at times. So uh, using these state machines to drive uh, entries into your log can be very, very powerful because then you can say, oh, okay, what was going on? Oh, I see. I was printing and the sensor came and gave me a bad reading and I went into an error and I got caught in a loop and I never came out of my error. So logging these things can be very powerful and you can actually play them back like a recorder if you, if you do it right too because you're right, the, the state machine, um, you can attach a lot of things to these actions that are very useful. Yeah, I forgot about that. Logging, logging directly, having a log that just tracks the state machine transitions is very helpful. And we, we just did another thing that was very useful. This is a kind of a silly trick, but I, I'm really enamored with. Our log files, what we do is we drop chunks of JSON into log entries. And what that does is it makes it really, really easy to parse these log files back for for tracking things in visualization because you can, you can pick out those values very easily because they just come out as a dictionary. So what we do is we'll read back these log files. We'll look at when events occurred. Uh, we'll you know pl plot different aspects of the machine, whether it's you know what was going on with the sensor or how often something happened. So yeah, we use the log files very, very extensively for, for kind of reproducing what happened in the run of the machine. Oh, nice. You talked about some different FSM packages. Do you have a favorite one you use? Well, we, we took the, the FSM package that we use in our machine and we made it open source. So I'll just call that one. It's called PyState. Uh, you can pip install P-Y-S-T-A-T-E. What's fun about that one is we actually use kind of an odd feature called coroutines to drive our states. And it's it's kind of a fun example for, for coroutines. What, what Everyone uh, is probably uh, used to the yield statement for a generator. 
And what you can kind of do is is treat that in reverse. The, what, what the generator does is it creates a function that after it yields, it, it stays in memory with its state. And then when you go back to it, it does a little processing and yields another value. Well, if you think about a state and state machine, it's really kind of the same thing. It's, it's kind of its own little processor. It gets an event and it says, here's what I do with the event. I spit something out or I transition to a, a, another uh, state. And so it can just sort of blissfully sit there in hibernation until the, the state machine dispatches the next event to it and then go on its merry way. So we use the Pi state to do that. It's, it's kind of a neat use of coroutines. One of the nice things about using a coroutine to do this also is we tend to have a lot of uh, persistent connections in our machine. So for instance, we might have to open up a port to uh, to the bus to talk to another part of the hardware, a serial port or USB port. So keeping that open and initialized and just in hibernation means you don't have to reinitialize that every time you get into your state. So that saves you a lot of work. Okay, cool. I'll have to check this out. Yeah, there's there's been a, m a million different implementations of state machines. Oh, yeah. So it's fun to see different ways people solve a similar problem. There's a lot of stuff going on there. <laughs> Well, you have to kind of learn the framework quirks yep. to get into it. But I think it is worth worth doing finite state machines. They are definitely a useful thing and uh, definitely used a lot in hardware. Yep. The logging and the testing ability and the just the ability to simplify a design. One of the things that's tough is is any sort of generic description of a state machine ends up talking about events in A and B transitions and things and graph theory. And it quickly becomes something that looks way more complicated than it is, I think. That's absolutely right. If you download Pi State, there's a very simple uh, example. I think it's a turnstile. It's similar to that Coke machine example where you put coins in and, and it can unlock the turnstile. Really what it is, if you look at the, co at the code here, you, you set up a couple states, uh, you know, state A and state B, and you say, uh, and you and you pass it events. An event could be a string, in, you know, and it, it could be just that simple. And the state machine code passes that event, that string, straight into that state, which and the state's just a function, right? It's just a, a callable there. It takes that that string. It says, well, okay, what what do I do with the string? If the string says go to B and I'm in A, I transition to B. If I'm in B and it says go to A, I go to A. If it says N, I go to my end state and end the thing. It's, it, it sounds very, very complicated. When you look at the code, really, you create these states, you hook them together um, and uh, register them with this dispatcher uh, and start sending in events. It's very simple. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love about them is the constructs around it can be easily thoroughly tested. And then the individual little components that you're using to put in, like your transition functions and stuff, can be tested on their own. And then you can build up this uh, a fairly complex system and be confident that it's going to work well because um, because you've tested all the pieces. That's right. And, and where it really shines also is 
you know, it, it would be lovely if we could design systems that don't change over time. But where you really get in trouble is when you need to extend systems. And adding new states to a state machine is really where it, it, it shines. Because you take your, your Coke machine and now someone says, okay, well, I want to be able to insert a credit card. Well, to do that, you can do it by just inserting more states into that existing system and that abstraction can grow. If you think about doing it without a state machine, again, your, your rat's nest of if-thens uh, and, and else-ifs uh, just grows and grows and grows and gets, gets uglier and uglier. So it's really a nice abstraction as, uh, as these systems evolve over time. You've got this 3D printer stuff. Which part of that are you working on most of the time or recently? Well, uh, a lot. I mean, one of the things that you're never done with when you're doing Visa hardware is trying to improve the reliability and the repeatability and the quality. So I'm always trying to make it print faster. I'm trying to make it have uh, more nines of reliability for, you know, uh, the equivalent of paper jams, for instance, how to, how to reduce that more and more. One of the areas I've been spending a lot of time, though, lately is actually probably interesting for this podcast is simulating the hardware for testing. So uh, what I've been working on is a fake version of the hardware that we can run for a test environment. So um, I, I worked on the original GPS project many, many years ago when I was in college and learned the lesson there that what you did, what you had in GPS, you had a vehicle and that might be an aircraft carrier or a tank or, or a person. You had a satellite, which was your GPS satellite. And then you had the radio, which was installed in the vehicle, which is actually, in those days, was a, a big radio. And now it's a chip in your phone. And we would simulate all three pieces. And you could plug and play the simulation for one, two, three of the pieces in order for testing. And why do you do that? Well, the answer was... Um, renting an aircraft carrier at the time in about 1985 cost $2 million a day. So you'd prefer to do it with simulation than by renting an aircraft carrier. And you don't even know what it takes to go fix a satellite once it's up in the air if, if it's not right. So simulate it, get it right on the ground, and then send it up was the answer. Well, we're doing something similar with, with the hardware, where if I've got a particular component um, I can write a simulation back into it, and then I can test it. And one of the nice things for this, in addition to being able to test without having your expensive printer in front of you, is you can simulate um, hard-to-replicate errors that way. If there's something that happens infrequently, let's say once every 10,000 pages, instead of waiting every 10,000 pages, you can have the simulation force the error condition and make sure your testing covers the case. A simulation can run faster than the hardware can. Yep. Are you trying to simulate the delays as well, or are you allowing your simulation to run as fast as it can? It's a case-by-case -case basis. There, there's clearly timing that you have to worry about in cases. I, one of the nice things about simulation is you can do things much faster. And, you know, uh, if you wanted to simulate a 100,000 years of forest growth, you could do it in, you know, a day of computer time instead of 100,000 years. Well, similarly, if you wanted to, to simulate a really large amount of printing, we could do it quickly. But there are also times where the timing's dependent. So there are places in the simulation where you get an event and you and you say sleep, you know, for whatever amount of time, and uh, and it just sits there. But uh, there are t a lot of timing-related conditions in, in running a printer like this. So there are places where that's an important thing to do. How are you simulating this stuff? Are you do you have like a fairly uh, cut and dry layer where your API to your hardware is that you can just write some code that pretends to be interacting with the API or 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So the first thing is the the, the architecture of the of the printer itself. There's a a PC which is the main brains of it, and this PC connects to a couple different buses depending on what system. But there's one main bus that all the different uh, microprocessors for running certain modules of the printer hang off of, and we send messages down this bus. And there's a a, pr- a protocol packet structure that we have for the uh, it's got a message header which is you know the command and a data packet and various things for uh, uh, basically checksums or crcs to make sure that the the message wasn't corrupted um, and so what we can do uh, and all that it, then we have a driver level it's very similar to the driver you'd have for a printer on your computer where you have a standard set of messages it goes through that driver and then every printer manufacturer can write uh, how to respond to that particular message for their hardware. Well, we do the same thing internally so that if we go from module version A to module version B, um, we can just do it with a small software change um, that's actually the versions of it are just in configuration files. So you can, one of the nice things again about Python is you can dynamically load these things at runtime. Um, And so what I tend to do, what I do is I write a class that pretends it's a serial port, uh, if I'm uh, simulating a serial port. And when you write to the serial port, uh, instead of going over the real port, what it does is it goes to my layer there, and it might just have uh, uh, a, you know, transmit command and a receive command and a buffer in it. And the transmit command will do its processing and push something on the, on the buffer. Uh, so it, we, we tend to just simulate it with, with classes that look like uh, the, these physical entities. We do have this driver level. There's another trick that we tend to do also, though, which is sometimes it's nice to have a GUI on these things. It's nice to be able to see visually what the state is, uh, maybe even have buttons where you can force things. Uh, you know, We have an emergency stop button, and you want to make sure that you can recover from the emergency stop. Well, having a button where you can press it to force an emergency stop is kind of nice. So another thing that I often do here is we can create a pipe and the pipe then will start a process which is a a GUI process here and then the GUI is receiving these messages and responding to it so instead of using that serial port it's a pipe and the reason we use the pipe is uh, that way it's it's non-blocking and your GUI doesn't lock up while it's waiting for things uh, because the pipe wakes up uh, it, it basically ends up acting like a queue for your input and output. And uh, so you press a button, the button responds immediately, and then it will have the effect when, when needed. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's kind of a nice trick. Uh, we do that in our main GUI because nothing's more annoying than you're, uh, you hit hit the button and it waits three seconds before the uh, it, it sees the button click. And, and particularly with something like pause, you've hit it three more times and it's queued them up and it's pausing and unpausing on you. So we use this pipe trick quite a bit. That's something that all hardware software systems have to deal with is event overflows as well. Yeah, yeah. I hope I answered the question on it. I think I meandered a little bit, but we do have a standard driver structure. And at that point, we can simulate just a few calls underneath it. And what you tend to do in that class that it's calling that's processing this stuff is you keep some state that's similar to the hardware state. So, you know, what the temperature is of this thing or whether it's paused or uh, what it thinks its name is or it's a firmware ID, whatever. And so it's just it's some fairly simple classes with uh, with some state data in them. And, you know, what what would a pause do? It receives the message. It sets the, the pause from false to true. It returns its status back and um, goes on its merry way. 
Now for so for the rest of the software on the other end, the control software and as whatever else that you're te- using to control your printers, are you using this uh, the fake hardware as part of the system level tests? Uh, we're just starting to. Um, that's the goal. It, this is a fairly new thing. It's been on my to do list for a very long time. Um, and the idea is, is is to do that. That should allow us to do um, module-level testing, uh, unit testing on the different pieces of it and, and do that. Um, because our GUI is connected to a pipe also, um, you, can, you can script the GUI, right? You, instead of having a person pressing a button, you could send the same messages just from, uh, uh, you know, uh, a command line tool, basically, or, you know, a, a testing tool. So... So we are starting to do that a little bit, but we're uh, we're uh, uh, we're, we're not going to win any awards for our advanced testing strategy at this. Point. In my environment, every everything that you can do to an instrument also can be done remotely because that's where our customers are using it. So we have to build it in. It's a good idea anyway, even if your customers don't use it, so that you can it helps with testing to be able to send any event without having to actually push a button. But. Right. And then we have to do a lot of other testing on top of it. I mean, we, we're manufacturing items, and we have to test the quality of the manufactured item. So we do metrology, for instance, where we'll we'll do physical measurements on, on the part made to see how our tolerances are. Was the, was the hole that was supposed to be round actually round? Uh, if it was supposed to be two millimeters in diameter, was it actually two millimeters in diameter? Was the, the height of the part right? Uh, was the strength the part? We do destructive testing where we rip them apart and we we test the tensile strength of these things. Uh, we're not done testing when the, when the hardware works either. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, you have to you have to test the actual output. Right. Uh, people flying in airplanes don't uh, want them to fall out of the sky. You got to got to make it work. There is drift that happens. Like for instance, in uh, measurement equipment. Uh, it, there, there is accuracy when it leaves our plant, but it can drift over time, and we have tolerances for that. I imagine there's something similar with, with your stuff to where when you install the hardware in the first place, yes, we can verify that the hole is exactly this this size, give or take some tolerance. Is that something that can be measured in the field over time to make sure that it's still accurate? It absolutely can, and there's a lot of work. To, first of all, when 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 we start the machine, we'll home home it, and you've got various sensors physically on the machine that will be limit switches, so you know where the zero point is and the maximum point is, and you can do that. We also have a fair amount of work for doing calibration and testing on it. We will, for instance, uh, run tests sheets through and measure the amount of powder that gets deposited on a page and we'll actually measure that with a microgram scale we'll do various we'll look at things under microscopes we'll, we'll do various things to calibrate and test and and you log this data uh, along with the parts that you know what was going on so there, there is uh, quite a bit of drift and you also have variances in the materials um, if you're using a powder, are all the particles of powder the same size? Did your chemical manufacturer change something? Uh, are all these sheets the same? There's, there's a lot of variants you can have. So over time, one of the things that you tend to do also is you add more and more sensors to these systems so that you can detect more of them uh, in real time and adjust to it. One of the things that we've been adding uh, in this uh, latest version of the printer are cameras to do uh, inspection. So we've got... Uh, 
Uh, we're using a package called OpenCV to do uh, various image processing at different points in the process to do uh, both calibration as well as um, as detection of errors. I imagine also some sort of logging of that too, so that if somebody finds an error later in the process, they can back up and try to find out where that happened and which parts were susceptible and things like that. That's absolutely right. You you want to traceability is very important. So you want to log all this information. Include we can we can log each layer that comes through, um, and we also want to be able to know, for instance, which bag of powder or bottle of ink was used, or or batch of fabric. And if you had a box of fabric that you'd loaded in the machine, what roll was it cut from, and which batch from the manufacturer it was? So I have a whole set of things that we do from our MIS or our information systems that's also in Python for dealing with this stuff. Uh, one of the great things people should play with if they have is barcode scanners. They're incredibly easy to use. And what they do is they just return strings of text to simulate a keyboard. So you put a barcode scanner on, you you scan your, uh, your bucket of powder, that goes to a database record and says, okay, this came from lot A and batch B from vendor X. And if you had a problem, you now know uh, which other 10 10 uh, bottles in your database were made from that same bad batch and to pull them. But you're, you're absolutely right. When you have a failure, you want to be able to go back and trace trace through it. And we, we keep it down to the level also of knowing which part uh, that was produced came from uh, w- which print job in the printer and where it was in that block and everything else. Uh, because you get all kinds of funny problems. Maybe... Uh, in your oven, uh, you've got a cold spot, and the things in the upper left of the block are, aren't getting cooked quite the same temperature profile. So this traceability becomes very, very important. Uh, you want that audit trail, and it becomes more and more important. The, you know, if you're prototyping something, it's not a big deal. If you're manufacturing things, very important. You know, if if, uh, if you make a part for a ventilator, you uh, you really don't want that ventilator to fail. The, the the results can be catastrophic. This entire field seems fascinating to be in. There, there's a lot of cool. It's moving very quickly. It's growing fast. It's very friendly. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's great fun. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities for folks to uh, to learn about or get involved if if they want to play with these machines and. Uh, yeah, it's, I'd, I'd highly encourage it. Manufacturing is not necessarily considered very sexy, but it's a really interesting area to be in and very important. And it's an absolutely an enormous market. It's just fascinating that there's like this crossover between between Python and software and fabrics and making things. And it's pretty cool. I like it. <laughs> I'm glad, glad we got your interest. Come, come over and visit anytime you want. I'm assuming I can't buy one of these things from my house. Uh, these are probably expensive things. Yeah, these are not office-friendly printers. Uh, they're, they're, you, you know, some of the low-end uh, spaghetti printers, right, uh, can be as low as two, three hundred, four hundred dollars. Better ones can be, you know, a thousand to three thousand. The industrial printers uh, that we're selling, they're about a quarter million dollars. And they're about 25 feet long and six feet tall. They're they're not office friendly. Um, uh, if you've got a very large house with the, with the, with a lot of electricity, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, give me a call. Uh, but no, this is really something that you'd have on a manufacturing floor. Some of the large, you know, direct metal printers can get into the uh, 
in excess of a million dollars. These uh, these are these are serious pieces of equipment. But there's a lot on the on the consumer side and the prosumer side that people can can deal with. And there are also a lot available at uh, museums and schools and community centers and maker spaces where you can uh, use someone else's machine to get involved. You don't have to make a large investment to play with it. Yeah. Well, this has been a ton of fun. So thanks for coming on the show and sharing all this with us. Uh, so your company, remind me again. It's Impossible Objects. That's impossible-objects with an, with an S, plural, dot com. Okay. And if people have questions for you, where can people reach you? Sure. Uh, my email address is L Wanger, and that's L W A N G E R at impossible objects.com. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from folks. Cool. And um, I'll definitely check out this. Um, we'll leave a link to this the state machine that you have worked on and uh, some other stuff. And it'll, cool. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Lynn. That was a fascinating talk. Thank you also to Datadog for sponsoring. Check them out at testingcode.com slash datadog. And thank you, CircleCI, for sponsoring. Check them out at circle.ci slash testcode. And thank you to all of the listeners that support the show through Patreon. Join them by going to testingcode.com slash support. All of those links, including links about some of the stuff we talked about in the episode, are at testingcode.com slash 121. Wow, 121 episodes. That's so cool. Thank you for sticking by. I know there's a lot of great back catalog stuff, so check that out. And you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Aachen, B-R-I-A-N-O-K-K-E-N. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. <laughs>